Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you all. The children can be dismissed at this time. And I should maybe also add, I f- forgot to mention, there won't be any child care during the meeting, but the nursery will be open for parents if you'd like to take your kids in there. The library will be open as well, and it's okay if they make a little noise. None of us really mind. If you will, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. As we continue our study through the gospel of Mark, we come to what is really the, the halfway point and the sort of middle high point for the gospel according to Mark. As Peter finally makes his great confession about the identity of Jesus, and yet as we mentioned last week, he also falls on his face quite severely just after his confession of Jesus. This morning we'll look at those events, events that are sometimes taken as separate, but I think that they, they fit together and they help us best to understand who the Christ is, what his mission is, and also what it means to actually follow after him. So if you will, please follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, and then we'll read through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And forfeit his soul. For what can a man gain in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we turn to the revelation that you have given to us, your very word, that you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts and make them the good soil so that the seed of your word would fall on them and bear fruit so that you might be glorified. Open our eyes to the realities of what Jesus Christ explains to his disciples and to the crowds. 
Even for those of us who already know these things, Lord, we desire to know them more greatly. Because as we think about our own lives and we think about the high bar of your holy character, we realize that we still fall far short of the glory of God. And yet we don't, we don't realize that in a way that drives us to despair, but a way that drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Seeking forgiveness, seeking strength, and we know that when we look to Jesus Christ in faith, what we seek, we will find. We don't ask you hoping that you'll forgive us and hoping that you'll help us. We ask you in complete confidence that you will forgive us and in complete confidence that you will help us. So help us now as we turn to your word, O Lord. We believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Misinformation can be deadly. On September 30th of 2022, just four months ago now, a father in North Carolina was driving home from his daughter's ninth birthday party. It was a dark and rainy night, and after putting his wife and his two daughters into their van, he drove the car that he came in separately back home under the directions of his GPS. The device directed him onto a road that led to a bridge. Unbeknownst to the man, the bridge had been destroyed nine years prior and had never been fixed and was not marked in any way that he would know that the bridge had never been fixed. Sadly, this father followed the information he was given from his GPS, made the turn, continued to drive, came to the bridge, and because he was simply following the information, or rather misinformation that he was given, he plummeted off the bridge to his death. He trusted the information that the GPS had given to him, but it turned out that it was misinformation. That's an extremely, extremely sad story. In fact, as I said, it's only four months old, so you can pray for the wife and the daughters who are now still grieving the loss of their father. It's an extremely sad story, and it could have and should have been prevented If only the right information were available to the man who was following the wrong information. But there's an even deeper sadness when it comes to misinformation being given about the Lord Jesus Christ. Misinformation about the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't just cost someone their life, it costs them their soul. A life lived according to misinformation about Jesus Christ will lead someone into an eternity in hell, forever separated from God, forever suffering under the righteous and just wrath of God. It's necessary for us then to make sure that that first of all, we are not operating according to misinformation about Jesus Christ. And then secondly, to make sure that we are well-equipped 
and compassionate enough to help others that we know to ensure that they too are not operating according to misinformation about Jesus Christ. As we look to our passage this morning, we see Peter's confession of Jesus, but we also see his confusion about Jesus. He recognizes the identity of Jesus, but he doesn't understand the mission of Jesus. And it creates a serious, serious problem. So serious, in fact, that Jesus actually refers to him as speaking on behalf of Satan. Peter and the disciples were swimming in a sea of misinformation about the Messiah, about the Christ, about the one whom Israel was long promised and had been waiting for, the one whom anticipation had been building and building and building. But the problem was that anticipation was met by misinformation. Or sure, they were looking forward to the Messiah, it's just that they did not understand what the Messiah would actually come to do. While we see Peter's confusion in the passage here, we also see Jesus' compassion. Compassion that moves in with a correction, a rather strong one, of Peter. And compassion that moves in, just as it has already done in the gospel according to Mark, by teaching. Teaching that is directly aimed at the disciples and the crowd in order to correct and to clear up the confusion that they had about who the Christ was was and what he would do. There's a lot of confusion today about Jesus, isn't there? Some are confused about his identity, who he is. Others are confused about his mission, what it was that he came to do. And still others are confused about what it is to follow him. In other words, simply what it means to actually be a Christian. While we see this confusion from the disciples, most especially displayed by their spokesman, Peter, we also see the clarity that Jesus brings to the situation. And as we, in 2023, look back so many years ago at this interaction between the disciples and Jesus, we see their confusion and we see his clarity. We need this very same thing. We need to make sure that we are not confused about who the Messiah is or what the Messiah came to do or especially what it means to actually follow the Messiah. After all, aren't we too swimming in a sea of misinformation about the Christ? Sometimes it's a sea of misinformation about his identity. I've had two conversations in the last two weeks, one with a Jehovah's Witness, you maybe get the phone calls too. Apparently they've got some secret phone book and they want to call their neighbors and share a Bible verse with them. And so I just told the lady in what may or may not have been a polite way, but we ended up having a long conversation that when it comes to Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses, we are dealing with two different Jesuses entirely. And so the lady said, oh, really? I've never heard that. Would you tell me more about that? And I said, yes, I will. (laughs) 
And then I talked to someone recently as well, someone who has been heavily influenced by the Mormons, who also seems to not understand that when it comes to Mormons and Christians, we are dealing with two vastly different Jesuses. So there's those obvious confusions about Jesus Christ, but then there's the more, more subtle confusion about Jesus Christ. We would quickly spot the prosperity gospel, the Jesus that's come to apparently make everything about your life better in this world right here, right now. Though I bet if you think about the way you actually practically live, you've probably bought into that Jesus a little bit more than you realize. For instance, if you don't rejoice in trials, then you're probably expecting a Jesus that seeks to remove you from trials. There's those subtle displays of Jesus, and there's the so many other misinformed understandings about Jesus Christ. A Jesus that's come to sort of be your buddy, that is there just to forgive you anytime you do anything wrong. You see, what's so dangerous about those more subtle forms of Jesus is that they're partially true. You know what was so dangerous about Peter's confession of Jesus and then his confusion about what the Messiah, what the Christ would actually come to do? It was partially true. Peter was right. He is the Christ. But Peter's version of the Christ was a conqueror of man. Peter saw the Christ as coming to do what he will do in his second coming. Make no mistake, we wait for a conquering king to come back. And he will come back. But before he conquers his enemies by wiping them out, right now he conquers his enemies by converting their hearts and changing their identities To no longer be in Adam, but now to be in Christ by faith in him. And that's what Peter missed completely. Or at least here he missed it. But then you think about when we studied 1 Peter, or perhaps if you read 1 Peter, you think about the way in which Peter described the Christ. And the way in which Peter described what it means to follow the Christ. The good news is that when Jesus moves in to clear up your confusion about who he is, it works. He does clear it up. And so we need to make sure that we have a clear understanding about the Christ, first of all, for the sake of our own souls and our own personal walks with the Lord and our own corporate walk with the Lord, our walk with the Lord together as a church body. And then also, we need to make sure that we understand the Christ so that we can help other people to rightly understand the Christ. We do not, we do not want to help them on their way to hell by affirming a wrong understanding of Jesus or simply being passive when we encounter a wrong understanding of Jesus. Now certainly there is a a wise and a kind and a gracious way to do that. But love and truth go together. If you love someone, 
you will tell them the truth. You will do that in a loving and a gracious way. But as we see from Jesus, even in his correction of Peter, Jesus, the one who never sinned, and yet sharply rebukes Peter, even compares him to Satan. We see that the Christian life is not a life of avoiding confrontation, but a life of wisely navigating confrontation, most especially when it comes to be about the Christ. And so let's walk through this passage then, understanding who the Christ is, who Jesus is, so that we can make sure we have a right understanding and we can make sure that we help others to have a right understanding so that we can more fully know Christ and fully share Christ clearly with others. So first of all, as we think about these areas of understanding that we need to gain in order to clear up the confusion about the Christ, let's look at verses 27 to 30, and there we'll see understanding Christ means making a right confession of Jesus. Understanding Christ means making a right confession of Jesus. We pick it back up in verse 27. It's just after Jesus has healed the blind man in a progressive healing with not one but two touches, which as we explained last week represents the, the touching of the disciples and the vision that the disciples would progressively gain. First, as Peter gains it here, the first touch by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, but still having a blurred vision of Jesus. And that second touch wouldn't come until after the death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. It would take those events for the disciples, Peter especially, to be able to clearly see in order to be able to proclaim the truth about the Christ. And so we need to understand that knowing the Christ means making a right confession of Jesus. Verse 27 says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So they walk away and they travel to a different land, a land that was, that was marked by paganism. And Mark tells us on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that this was not Jesus's, uh, this was not the question that Jesus was really intending to get to. This was the warm-up question. You know how when it's cold outside, if your car's parked outside and it frosts over, you go outside and you start the engine and you let it warm up a while? At least that's what we did in Indiana because you had to. Otherwise, things were not going to go good for you. I'm sure in Alaska most especially. You warm the engine up so that the car is ready to go. When you get in it, it's thawed out, it's warmed up, the engine's warm, and it's ready to go. This was the warm-up question. I'm not so sure Jesus was all that concerned with what the people thought of him. He knew what the people thought of him. But he asked the disciples, hey, what are the people, what are the people saying about me? And so it gets their minds thinking. And so they answer in verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So Jesus asked them, who are the people saying I am? And they give him three options. 
There could have been other options. There probably were other options, though they were probably not pleasant enough to record in Scripture. John the Baptist, Elijah, and one of the prophets. That's the the talk around Israel. And we've seen this already. Herod thought the very same thing, at least as far as John the Baptist and Elijah. Back in chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, it says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' had, Jesus's name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So already throughout Israel, that's been the buzz. The only way to explain this man who can heal people and who can cast out demons and who teaches in a way that they've never heard before is somehow to attribute his power to a sort of supernatural resurrection of John the Baptist or a supernatural return of the prophet Elijah who never actually died but was taken up into heaven. The people of Israel were were waiting for Elijah to come back. That was the, the talk of the, of the day. They were looking for God to bring Elijah back in a very similar way to the way that God took him up. After all, if someone doesn't die, but they're just taken up to heaven, you would expect that there's going to be a, a pretty cool chapter two of their life. And so they thought, well, maybe he's Elijah. I mean, he, he speaks out against wickedness. He performs miracles. And others thought he's one of the prophets. Notice it's one of the prophets, not one of many prophets, but Jeremiah perhaps, Isaiah, Ezekiel, one of the prophets, one of the great prophets held in high esteem in Israel. You notice they're comparing Jesus to men. Certainly it would be an honor to be compared to John the Baptist, to be compared to Elijah, to be compared to one of the prophets if you were just a man. But in Jesus' case, he's the God-man. Fully God and fully man. And so in order to, or if you compare Jesus to a man then actually in your comparison, what you're doing is dethroning Jesus and bringing him down to the level of humanity. They perhaps thought they were honoring him, but it was actually blasphemy and a great dishonor. They had it wrong. And Jesus, of course, knew that. And actually, we discovered that the disciples knew that they had it wrong. Verse 29, the the engine has been warmed and Jesus gets to the question that is the arrow that pierces the disciples' hearts. And it's the arrow that pierces our hearts. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? The Greek is emphatic there. It's, It's more like you, but who do you say that I am? Jesus has brought them to this fork in the road moment, this crossroads moment, this this pinnacle of their understanding. And he, he gives them the opportunity after they've been following him for about two and a half years now already. He gives them the opportunity to 
observe what they've seen, to talk amongst themselves, to think about it, to meditate on it, to process it. And now he asks them the question. Do you remember the question that the disciples asked after Jesus calmed the storm back in chapter 4? He speaks to the storm, the storm calms, the water is smooth as glass, and the disciples, first of all, are terrified. And then they say to each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? That, the theme of that question has been running in the background through the Gospel of Mark up until this point. They asked their question, who is this? Mark's been answering that question with the identity of Jesus. And now Jesus seems to understand that the disciples have had enough time to think about it. And he's the one that asked the question now. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, seems to speak up on behalf of all the disciples. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. If this had been earlier in the ministry of Jesus, they probably would have said, we don't know. We don't know. We were just asking ourselves the very same question after you did that cool thing where you stopped the storm. But now they've seen enough. They've followed long enough. And Jesus turns and points the spotlight directly on them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. How would you answer that question? As God shines the spotlight on you, right here, right now, how would you answer that question? Who is Jesus Christ? That's the ultimate question, isn't it? That's the question that if you get wrong, ruins everything else. But as we come to understand in the full context of this passage, you can actually answer the question correctly and yet still misunderstand what it is that the Christ came to do. The anticipation of the Christ was high. They were looking for the Christ, or in Hebrew, the Messiah. The word means the anointed one or anointed. There were three different offices in Israel that were that involved being anointed. The king was the primarily anointed one. The prophets were anointed. And then priests were also anointed. And so this idea of being anointed was very familiar to Israel. But you'll notice that Peter doesn't just say you are an anointed one. He says you are the anointed one, the Christ the one that we have been waiting for, the one whose power will reign and be demonstrated over all of our enemies. That's who you are, Jesus. You're the Christ. Matthew, or Mark rather, doesn't tell us what Mark, Mark doesn't tell us what Matthew tells us. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, right after Peter makes this declaration, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, it wasn't that Peter gathered all the facts and looked at each one of those facts and weighed the evidence 
And then he said, the verdict is that you are the Christ. What have we seen already? What was, the, what was the illustration or the story of the blind man intended to communicate to us? That unless Jesus opens your eyes, your eyes won't be opened. Mark has been showing us what Matthew plainly tells us. The only reason that Peter could recognize the identity of Jesus is because God showed it to him. Who was responsible for Peter's confession? Who was responsible for Peter's right recognition? It wasn't Peter. It was God. Nothing has changed about that. The same God who is sovereign over Peter's confession is the same God who is sovereign over all of our confessions even today. And so this this means that it is necessary that as we think about our evangelism, it's necessary that as you think about your own soul right here, right now, this means that we understand that it's not so much about your ability to clarify the gospel as it is your pleading with God to save souls. Don't we rely far too much on our own ability? And yet the Bible clearly tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. Christians fight through prayer. Isn't this what we see in the book of Acts? Peter is arrested, and what does the church do? They call a prayer meeting. And they pray. And Peter's busted out of jail. And he shows up at the doorstep, and they can't even believe it, so they close the door on him. Persecution rises, and the church gathers together, and they pray. And the Holy Spirit shakes the building that they're in, and they're filled with boldness, and they continue to proclaim the word of God. What happened to those days? Has our God changed? Has his methods changed? Have our tactics changed? They shouldn't, but I think sometimes they have. A prayerless church is a puny church. And a prayerless Christian is a puny Christian. Isn't it the upside down way of God to use something that is as seemingly insignificant to the world as prayer? The world has their own version of prayer right now. That's what mindfulness is. You've heard of mindfulness? It's like this new, new age catchy thing, being present in the moment. Now, that's dangerous, you know why? Because it's right to be present in the moment. You should be. But it's all about the motive. What is the motive of mindfulness? What is the moment of the world's version of being present in the moment? It's all self-fulfilling. We'll get to the self-sacrifice part in a minute here. It's all about you. It's about your health, your mental wellness. Is there something wrong with being concerned about your health and your mental wellness? No. But if you love God and you love your neighbor, 
as yourself, then you will be concerned about your health and your mental wellness. But you'll be able to recognize the foul taste of that garbage and instead choose to fill your mind with thoughts of God. Fill your mind with thoughts of the will of God. What has God revealed to you in his word? It's, it's, it's not some mystical, magical puzzle you've got to weave together. Now, there are answers to questions that you simply won't know. But the men just studied Romans chapter 12, which taught us that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed in the renewing of our mind so that we will be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So here's the reality, brothers and sisters. If you're not devouring the scriptures, you're not even able to discern the will of God. And that's not meaning to be laid on you as if, it's a, as if it should be a guilt trip. You know the old familiar wag your finger, read your Bible thing? But that angry preacher reading, telling you read your Bible, he's not all wrong. His motive might be off. It's a necessity that we walk in the light of God's word, is it not? But if you never let that light shine into your life, how will you walk rightly? Here's the answer. You won't. But the good news is, the word of God teaches us how to live for the God of the word. His word is life itself. That's why the Apostle John tells us that his commandments are not burdensome. They're life. And so we must understand that in the word of God lies the key to understanding everything else. Peter makes this confession of who Jesus is and then verse 30 says, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We've seen this over and over again in the gospel according to Mark. Jesus' explanation, in fact, really his command, his charge, his strict charge, don't tell anyone what you've just said. There's a couple reasons for that. First of all, if word spreads too much, then there will be greater problems for Jesus before the time of his death has come. So he tells him, don't say anything. But I think an even bigger reason is because Peter understands the identity of Jesus, but he does not understand the mission of Jesus. And so Jesus is effectively saying, Peter, you're right, but don't go telling anybody because you're not right on everything. And, and therein lies the, uh, yet another reason for us to be biblically informed about the Lord. So that we don't say wrong things to people about Jesus. So that our information doesn't misguide them like that man's GPS. So we understand, first of all, that, that understanding Christ means making a right confession of Christ. And then secondly, 
Understanding Christ means knowing the mission of Jesus. Understanding Christ means knowing the mission of Jesus. Verses 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter's confession prompts Jesus' beginning to teach them about the Christ. But notice that Mark doesn't call him the Christ here. He calls him the Son of Man. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. We've gone over the Son of Man before, but let me just remind you what the Son of Man means. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we get a description of the Son of Man. And I want you to listen to it. Because it's a description that does not seem to fit suffering. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It's sometimes said that the Son of God is a description of Jesus' deity, and the Son of Man is a description of Jesus' humanity. That's wrong. So don't say that. The Son of Man is a description of Jesus' deity. He describes the Son of Man as one who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom, And the purpose of giving the dominion, glory, and a kingdom is that all people's nations and languages should serve him. The dominion he's given is an everlasting dominion. It will never pass away, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. Now, you've got that in your minds, right? Jesus teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. How can the one who has been given an eternal dominion, ever suffer? How can the one whom the Father has given lordship of everything suffer? We can understand their confusion. They didn't understand that the Son of Man, the one who is sovereignly in charge of everything, the Lord of all, They didn't understand that the Son of Man is at the same time the suffering servant. Because they weren't primarily concerned with their sins. They were primarily concerned with their political agenda. Their understanding of the Christ was one who would throw off the rule of Rome so that they would never be dominated by another world power again. Their understanding of the Son of Man was that he was the son of David, a king who would sit on David's throne forever. Kings aren't supposed to be defeated, right? And so we can understand their confusion, but Jesus clarifies their confusion because he needs them to understand, he wants them to understand, and he will show them through his death and resurrection that their biggest problem is not in the world. Their biggest problem is their sinful hearts. That's the mission of the Messiah. So I ask you today, do you understand that your biggest problem is your sinful heart? 
that there's never a point in time in your life, even after being a Christian, that you do not fall short of the glory of God. Because if you don't understand that, you don't understand the mission of the Christ. And if you don't understand the mission of the Christ and you're attempting to navigate your life by that misinformation, you will take a wrong turn. You already have. So allow the word of God to correct you. To go off like a warning light and say, stop, repent. Turn away from that misunderstanding and turn to the truth about the Messiah. He says he'll suffer, he'll be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He's describing the Sanhedrin, and he'll be killed. But after three days, he'll rise again. We have the great benefit of reading the story nearly 2,000 years later. Of knowing that by God's grace, these men, except for Judas, these men understood. They got it finally. And they preached it clearly. And now here we are today because they were faithful. But then Peter objects. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't really need to belabor how foolish that is, do I? Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Get behind me, Satan. In the course of one conversation. Peter got the identity right, but he failed to get the mission right. And Jesus says, if you fail at any one point in understanding who I am, then it's comparable to the lies of Satan. Speaking misinformation about Jesus is comparable to the lies of Satan. So it's necessary that we understand who he is and what he's come to do, isn't it? It's absolutely necessary. Listen to what one commentator said about this. In trying to avert Jesus from suffering, Peter, in a way he cannot know, opposes a deep mystery of God. For suffering is the only way to destroy the stronghold of Satan which is Jesus' declared purpose from early in the gospel. Jesus sees in Peter's rebuke in opposition to the essential design of the incarnation. To think in human terms, when human terms conflict with the things of God, is no longer to be a disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of Satan. And yet Jesus, in his infinite compassion, corrects Peter, strongly corrects him, but doesn't cast him off. Friends, we do the very same thing. We make the very same mistake when we put the things of God in equality or certainly above the things of, the things of God, above the things of man. That's a good word for American conservative Christians, isn't it? I don't propose to know where that line is, and I certainly believe in a right practice of our civil responsibilities. I believe in being informed about political events, though I'm really not all that concerned in them myself. 
but I believe that it's responsible to do those things. It's responsible to vote as a citizen. And it's responsible to do your best to cast a right vote. But we cannot make the mistake of hitching our wagon to conservatives who are not Christians in the very same agendas. We, we desire, we pray for, we work for preserving the gifts that God's given to us in the freedoms that we have. But we've read the book. It's going to get worse. Now, that's not an excuse to not pursue a right agenda, to fight in a right way. But be careful to not swing the pendulum too far. Because the design of Jesus is that he would suffer and his people would follow that very same path of suffering in a way that makes the world scratch their heads going, I don't get it. What's so great about this Jesus guy that they're willing to die for? And that's the type of witness that matches the Savior's sacrifice. And so understanding Christ means making a right confession and it means knowing the mission of, Christ, of Jesus. And then finally, yeah, we'll do it. I'll try to. No, let's stop there. We'll, we'll finish it up next week. It's too necessary for us to try to fly through. but I want to leave you with this. My friend, you have got to make absolutely sure that you know the identity of Jesus Christ and you know the mission of Jesus Christ because your soul depends on it. Your soul depends on it. What good is anything else if you sacrifice your soul? I praise God that there are plenty of people here who do understand that. And yet we rejoice in a deeper understanding, don't we? Now, those of us who do understand the identity and the mission of Jesus, let's not let anyone misunderstand There's children that run around here who need us to show them and tell them about who the Messiah is. There's neighbors that we have who need us to tell them who the Messiah is. And in a a patient and right, wise, godly way to not put up with their misunderstanding. To not just settle for this sort of squishy Jesus who can fit into any box you want him to. So often we settle for just this vague idea of a love for Jesus, and that's enough for us to call each other brothers and sisters. We've got to make sure it's the right Jesus, the true Jesus, the real Jesus. Love for Jesus is a marker of unity, but we need to make sure it's the right Jesus. God help us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are so good 
and so great beyond our comprehension. Help us. Help us to understand who you are and not just understand who you are, but love who you are. Rejoice in who you are. Be happy in who you are. Because as we understand who you are, we understand that we are united with you. That our identity is no longer us, but it's you. That we've traded the filthiness of our our unrighteousness for the perfection of your righteousness. That we are now clothed with Jesus Christ. Let us always rejoice in that reality, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.